Hi guys and welcome to another edition of the Parts Unboxing Podcast. I'm Lukash as always and yeah today the main focus of discussion is going to be the pretty brutal war between Apataya and Marius Bredis in which Apataya um, came out on top despite his jaw pretty much literally hanging off. He uh, had both mandibles broken. He broke apparently one side on in the second round and then by the end of the fight, both sides were just completely broken through. You see, you can see his x-ray if you search on Twitter. It's, um, it's a horrible injury. And Breedis, you know, he, uh, he didn't have any single injury that severe, but he got pretty severely beaten up. It was a, it was a brutal fight and Optaya came through to win, you know, the upset victory over, over Breedis. Uh, on home top, on home soil, but it wasn't any kind of a robbery. I scored it six six, but there really is no arguments with um, with an Opatia win. And yeah, and I'm gonna because I predicted a handy Breedis victory in which Opatia was exposed as being a bit too shallow. I'm gonna have to talk about um, you know what I got wrong and uh, what it was that Opatia surprised me with. Which you know I, I always enjoy doing these. Um, you know, it's, it's great to get a prediction right but sometimes for, for, for figuring out where you went wrong and seeing what a fighter you know just seeing a fighter be better than i thought is it's it's that's always enjoyable and you know fig, fig, figuring it out is always fun i'm going to try to stop stuttering i'm not going to restart the recording there because that would be um weird uh it wouldn't be weird it would just be the right third time i've done it so it's just not i'm not just going to do it i'm just not going to do it um in any case let's get on get on with it so yeah story of the fight essentially was um one of two halves in which Opataya um came out strong and took took the lead and he dominated the first half of the fight at one point hurting breeders quite badly in the fourth round um and then he sort of started slowing down and breeders started to come back at him and um the last six rounds or so were really attritional um and yeah well it went to the cards um, Breedis had the momentum towards the end, but he couldn't just couldn't quite get it over the line. Now, the detailed story of the fight. Well, let's start with uh, what I thought was going to happen, just to frame what actually did happen in a bit of you know. Just that's that's just going to be the context I'm going to come at it from. So you know, deal. Um, yeah. So what I said was going to happen. Um, well, Breedis is he's quite an underrated fighter, although perhaps less than he was a few years ago, and also he's. 37, so maybe slowing down a bit, but I don't think that had too much to do, you know, he's not what he was when he fought Usyk, but, um, you know, I think if Opataya had been what I thought he was, Breedis would still have beaten him. This wasn't a case of Breedis being, you know, completely aged out. Um, Breedis is a very clever, very layered fighter, and also sort of a ruling browser. He's a very, he's got very tricky footwork, and but he's very good at judging range, very good at, um, making fighters fall short with jabs, with punches, um, and coming at them and, you know, always taking little angles and uh, just making things very awkward to be hit and uh, awkward to diffuse, um, you know, to take angles away that he can't reach. Um, and basically what I thought was going to happen is I thought Opataya, Opataya looked nice and tidy, but I thought he was only going to have one layer of things to throw at him. I didn't think he was going to have the timing to catch Breedis regularly, I thought he was going to fall short, he was going to fall in when he felt short, and um, and he was going to get, you know, eventually end up getting out of shape, losing puff and getting caught out. And what actually happened was up a tyre, um, was a very, uh, um, 
you know, he did he did what I thought he was going to try to do. He just did it better than I thought. Um, his jab was really great. His south, well, this should be, I should make this clear. His southpaw fights with Breedus, who isn't. Um, Breedus has fought Usyk and uh, Gravatsky, so fighting southpaws isn't new to him. You know, that wasn't the thing that that caught him out either. I know, he was a southpaw. He's a long-ranger guy. And um, what he's got is, well, first thing, he's got a very good jab, a very fast jab, sharp jab. But he's got an absolutely fantastic one too. Um, and yeah, so he wasn't falling short with the jab. He was catching Breedus pretty steadily with the jab. But what uh, Breedus really found difficult is he couldn't work off the jab, which is, you know, something if, 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 a, if a guy seems to have like a relatively shallow game built behind a jab. Uh, we saw it a few weeks ago um, with um, Paterbio versus Smith, although Smith is, you know, Technically, not he's not the kind of fighter Pattaya is the smooth uh, operator. Even even you know even if I thought even if I thought Pattaya wasn't going to be at this level, he is a smoother operator than Smith. But what I'm trying to say here is, um, Baterbiev discouraged Smith from uh, jabbing by throwing over the top of the jab all the time, and um, but he just couldn't do that because every time he tried to respond to the jab, he got caught with um, with a follow up in the one two, and these weren't the same punches all the time. Like he wasn't following up. It wasn't a steady one two of the same shot it was always something different like the left hand coming afterwards was always it was an uppercut or to the body a hook to the body a shovel hook of some kind there's you know the overhand lefts you know straight lefts going out going in it was always something different like a complete variation and just the timing on it was so good it wasn't you know always you know obviously a one two is a you, th you think of it as beat beat but um yeah, it was, he just buried up. It's an extremely good timing and he completely fucked with what Bledis was trying to do. And that really diffused an awful lot of, of Bledis' game plan because he couldn't get the footwork going. He couldn't get that uh, range management going. You know, like I say, he's, uh, Bledis has normally got fantastic range management and he just couldn't get it, um, couldn't get it sorted out. Um, and because of the variation, uh, Breedus wasn't sure what he needed to be doing because if it had just been an overhand right, Breedus could duck, come in, duck under, slip under, and uh, try to close the range that way. If it had just been like uppercut, he'd be doing other things. He'd be coming around the side. But it was always something else. So Breedus early on just didn't have a safe way to close range that he knew was there. And don't get me wrong, he still landed his shots. He still got his licks in. The, like, the, both sides, you know, I, I say this was a tale of two halves where. Um, where Opataya controlled the first half and Breedis controlled the second, but that just isn't uh, doesn't get across. Both sides are very close. It was a swing of momentum, but it wasn't like a domination on one side, domination on the other. And uh, Breedis was. I apologise if I'm pronouncing Breedis wrong. By the way, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be Breidis. It's just I've been living in Germany, so when I read it. Um, when I read IE now, it just automatically comes out as uh, E. Uh, no, okay, Marius Bridus. <laughs> yeah, he he was getting his in. Like he's clearly he's still a really good fighter, and um, and Opataya. Well, you know, my concerns about the shallowness of Opataya's game in terms of having several layers, he had a bit more than I thought, but it was still there. Like when Breeders close range, um, he still. He still had 
well, Pattaya was still struggling to defend once he came in close. Um, that became apparent later in the fight, but even early on, basically, when the fight was at distance, Bridus really struggled to close range. But um, but once he was close, he was pretty much doing whatever he wanted, um, and Pattaya did not have super answers to that except to get back out to range which early on he did very well and his footwork held up really well um, and that was one thing one other thing that I was definitely sharper than I thought his footwork um, you know I thought it was his what he was doing would be correct but just a little bit um, not as sharp as he needed to be but it was very sharp it was pin sharp and um, yeah like I say against a fighter like Marius Bridis you're never going to be out of range at all times like it's just not really going to happen like um, you know those fighters really aren't, aren't really around like if Usyk couldn't keep him at bay um, off balance all the time you know so um, or Pattaya it just wasn't going to happen so so he did get in close and he did get his licks in and um, he landed an uppercut early on which apparently broke the jaw in the second round and that was a thing that was one of the things that I think Pattaya is going to have to work on. Um, it is partly where that game, that shallowness of that game came in a bit because he was ducking down a lot. Like that was his first evasion always. Um, sort of trying to slip under things, which cracked him into a uppercut a lot. And uh, ultimately throughout the fight, he never adjusted it, which is why his jaw ended up as fucked up as it was. Um, so that, you know, for, it was a brilliant performance, but, but we, you know, this podcast being what it is, me being the uh, the, the, the the analysis nerd who I am, you know, I have to say um, he was he does need to throw in a few things. Basically, his defense is based around range management, and when that range management doesn't happen, he doesn't really he only really has that one answer, and so he needs to figure out a few just alternate routes out, a few pivots maybe. Um, just have his guard a bit of you know have something with his guard um, blocking shots. It doesn't you, know, you don't need a cross arm guard or anything, but uh, tuck your elbows in, make it harder to get things up the centre line. He just needs to have answers because his range management was superb, especially early on before he's hired. This is something I'm going to go on to later, but um, but yeah, those are the little gaps that he's going to have to work on, especially if his you know it's going to be too early to talk about his next opponent because he's going to be out for a while with that injury. But, um, but unless something spectacular happens, he is going to fight Lawrence Coley somewhere down the line, you would think. And Coley is going to be the rare case of someone much longer than him. So so he's going to have to think about other things than range management in in the meantime. But um, let's not focus too much on the negative, because, you know, especially in the first half especially, it was, you know, what he was doing was sweeter than that. And like I really can't, um, can't praise... Just the variation, the timing of that one too enough. It was just really, really nice. And uh, you know, if, you know, people may say that, like I say, people may say that Bradis aged, but he hasn't. You know, even the second half of the fight showed he still has. It's not like he was gun shy, which is one thing that happens when you really start getting shot. Um, he was still throwing the shots. He just couldn't get them home without ta- getting tagged hard, um, which is what happened in the fourth round. Although talking on a variation, uh, this wasn't the 1-2. This was a shot with the lead right hand, um, which uh, Bridus basically did not see coming. I think he was, you know, I, I think in this instance he was trying to slip under the jab and instead of Pattaya threw an uppercut, so he just walked himself straight into that lead right hand uppercut. It was a beautiful shot. And, um, you know, thankfully for Bridus, 
there was what 11 seconds ago in the round when he landed it something like that um and yeah he was hurt hurt and his nose was smeared all over his face and he was backing up and it was just a it was a very hurtful shot and if the, if it had if it'd been 30 seconds earlier um the fight may well have been over may well have been over then and there um as it is he you know he he knew what to do to get himself safe um he got himself back in the corner he, he recovered um potentially Opataya pushed too hard to try to get the finish then and there but I don't think so it was 10 seconds um and he had you know he'd been having a very good round and yeah I don't think stamina is so much an issue like I'm going to be talking about what how he fought and he got tired in just a second um but it's not going to be stamina so much as knowing what because you're always going to lose some pace um and yeah, he managed. He managed. He controlled the pace of the fight very well early, like really well. Um, it was fought mostly on his terms, which is why he had so much success. Um, even you know, even when Breeders came in, it was a. Uh, well, it wasn't when Optai wanted him to, because he never wanted him to be really close. But it was um, after an engagement that Optai chose. Just on those occasions, he didn't get out quick enough. If you see what I'm saying, um, yeah, it was Optai was controlling. Uh, the sort of the range and the engagements um, in the first half, um, but yeah, um, Breedis. So in the fourth round, Breedis took a pretty, you know, pretty. He was already losing that fight quite strongly. Then he took that really hard shot. He got through to the end. Rounds five and six were on tires, and then Breedis sort of reco- had recovered by then, and then he started to get back into it. And uh, to some extent, that wouldn't have been because he was working things out, but some of it. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, Opataya does have the one thing that he likes to be doing. But, um, I would say that there is a, the one thing Opataya can learn, and it, whether this is to keep himself, you know, to keep doing the same thing, but more rugged, uh, you know, when he is a little bit slower, or to add a few more strengths to his bow, he really needs to do both if he's going to continue, you know, when he, when he comes back. Um, what really happened was Opataya started to slow down a bit, and yeah, he, um, I mean, <clears throat> this is his first time at this level, um, I think it was first 12-rounder, um, he just didn't really, you know, I don't want to make this sound like um, he wilted, because he absolutely did not will, like, he's had that, you know, the guts of a hero, like, the, um, you know, if you follow me and Taylor, well, if you follow Taylor, uh, if you follow the fight site on Twitter, you will know that Taylor, at Taylor on Sport, likes to talk about the Lebedev, Dennis Lebedev hard bastard scale. And the 10 is a very rare give out, um, but he did give Jai Pattaya a full 10 because fighting with that jaw, you know, he didn't, he didn't freak out. And it's not that he melted and was doing the wrong things completely. He just wasn't doing the things he had been doing quite as sharply as before. Um, you know, that comes with experience like just having done that I'm assuming he was properly you know with the best to the guy having done that once he will know next time better what he needs to sharpen up what what he can't sharpen up and needs to find alternatives for um, just little things about how he moves when he's that tired and that under pressure um, some of that will just come naturally as an occurrence of having done it once and he's rarely going to have it under this kind of pressure so you know this will be it would have taken some out something out of him but it will be a good learning experience for him too um but yeah just little things about just for example um 
most of the time in the first half of the fight, um, Obatai was able to take the first step. And in the second half of the fight, it was just that half-beat slower time to take the step, and so Breeders would rush him, and then he'd sort of, um, he'd get uh, out of shape, um, and kind of not really know, you know, he'd just get sort of shoved back, or and then sort of take punches while he's balanced. And um, just that one thing he needs to learn how to do more consistently is throw the intercepting throw the two or the one two basically um if the jab doesn't if he doesn't get the jab home if he doesn't have time to throw the jab he still needs to have the backup shop in the chamber um to to intercept the guy like if your jab doesn't work you still need to be able to land the shot that would have come after it in that situation and uh and he kind of didn't I mean he kind of did and he you know he wasn't out of it again um he you know it wasn't not there but um you know he needs to have a little less he needs to be a little more prepared in that situation a little at least a little bit more measured because I feel like one of the things you know in the first half of the fight he was picking what shots he was throwing at Breedis so he Breedis so he was able to intercept him dissuade him in the second fight second half of the fight um yeah the jab wasn't working so well um, the first step, you know, he's losing the first step. The interception shots he was throwing were now more on Breedis' terms, and he just, um, he kind of wasn't picking them. He was just kind of throwing whatever came to hand, however he happened to be standing. And that needs, you know, it, it just needs a little bit of work. It just needs, needs a little bit of sharpening up, in my opinion. Um, you know, I am speculating entirely here about what was going on in his head. You know, I say I think he was panicking. Panicking is too strong a word. Flustered. Um, I don't know if that's true, but um, I feel like he was just feeling the pressure a bit more. Um, what else? Um, yeah. Then um, there was one one thing that I will say that was true from the start. It just uh, became more evident as the fight went on again, as uh, Opatai started to tie up. Is um, Bradis was usually more ready for the second engagement by which I mean if they had a quick exchange and they stepped away from each other um, Bredes was more ready to come back in and throw a combination straight away this quick re-engagement and Opataya tended to be already be in the mindset of trying to get away and um, in the first half of the fight he was able to mostly do that um, when he did take shots it was when that failed a lot of the time um, but he was usually able to get most away most to get away and uh, do that and also punish Bridus a little bit, little bit on the way out um, not with hard shots in that instance usually um, but with a jab with a, you know, with a little something as he left um, but in the second part of the fight um, he at first didn't do that I mean I will give I will give credit where credit's due um I'm going to be a little bit contradictory here because um, eventually he did start deciding that he needed to punish Bradis to push him off him. Um, I think by then it was too late. And again, this is the thing. It wasn't bad tactics. I mean, it was. I think it was a wrong decision in a moment. Um, I think, I mean, possibly I'm just doing positive, um, positive, uh, whatever the word is, you know, when you're confirming your own biases because I said... Um, I think it was in the comments on Band of Turk, it might have been on Twitter. Um, I was sort of live commenting both, but more in the comments. Um, I said at one point that uh, Opatia probably needs to um, 
just throw the jab, um, just jab and skate, because the jab wasn't really working so much anymore, um, and he wasn't ready for the follow-up. Um, so I'm already contradicting myself there a bit, but um, but that's just because he didn't have it. You know, he clearly didn't have that interception in the tank. Um, and I said I thought he needed to just jab and skate, jab and skate, um, and he didn't do that. Um, he carried on doing what he was doing, and then he um, then he started to really. Um, he tried to throw down with Bridis, Bridis, and I didn't think, you know, maybe, I don't know, I think if he'd done that a little bit earlier, um, while he still had more sharpness in, it would have had more effect. Um, when he started to do it, he was mostly losing the exchanges and losing more sharpness, and then, then by the time he did decide that he needed to be really on the outside, um, by then he'd lost enough sharpness that it just wasn't really working for him at all and he ended up being you know hugging a lot um clinching and he's not a great clinch fighter at the moment and Bridus is so you know he kind of was slowly breaking down as the fight went on um you know these aren't huge this wasn't like huge raw errors that he's never going to fix these are little things that he's going to have to work on um but uh but yeah, I think it was basically maybe a case of inexperience, just a case of inexperience. Um, he saved. Yeah, he tried to do the thing that saves you energy after he'd already lost the energy. And he tried to do the thing. Yeah, okay, it does require some energy, but it, it was kind of almost the tactical in this particular fight, because this isn't necessarily going to be the true against everyone. But in this particular fight where Rodas is the combination puncher and the, the slugger and all of that stuff, the brawler, a very highly technical brawler, but nonetheless, um, trying to brawl with him should be, you should have it in your pocket, um, don't get me wrong, um, he wasn't wrong to think he needed to do it at all, but I feel like that should be the weapon of last resort in this situation, um, you know, if you really have to, great, have it ready, be super ready with that, like I say, those intercepting things, but if you're going to trade and engage with Bradis, um, you know, be aware that you're going to lose some of those exchanges, that you're going to lose energy even faster. Um, yeah, just a, just a little thing. You know, I would have swapped the order from doing those two things. Um, and that's just, a, you know, that's also a case of stamina management, managing what you've got. Um, and yeah, but, but yeah, the other thing is um, simply um, Okitaya was so, and this was throughout the fight, um, so in his head to be disengaging uh, you know when he did start doing this re um start sort of punching um Bradis, i would say and this wasn't like a you know major thing in the sense that the exchanges were there they were quite even Bradis was probably going to win them anyway because that's just his game but um but yeah he was always readier to come straight back in for a second rapid exchange um Opatai, i was always in the mindset of get it out and reset first and that's a good thing to do, you know, he should be resetting and he should be um, because that is what allows him to goad Bridus on to take, you know, to be reaching more and all of that stuff but if that disengagement fails, you do need to be ready for the um, the second exchange straight away and again, that's something, you know, firstly, he's rarely going to face it on as high a level as this you know, Usyk is a master of disengage, re-engage, disengage, re-engage, not really fast, but he's not going to face Usyk, and there isn't anyone in the cruiserweights right now who's going to do that to him. Um, but 
and it's something he should have you know that's something he needs to learn and I think you know I think he will like just what he displayed here um there were no gaping flaws you know there are things that uh that he can work on some things are you know nothing quite as huge as I thought I saw before the fight some of the things are the things that I thought I was seeing he just had much better cover for them so like I say um he does need a bit more just a bit more depth just a bit more backup for the one two um definitely more um awareness in the clinch because that's where his big weakness was and again he was fighting breeders so um there aren't going to be too many fighters who are better in the clinch than Bridus. But for example, if he fights Dominic Sokoli, um, a lot of Sokoli is going to be, you know, just a tricky style matchup for him because um, he's really long, but he's also really good and fucking ugly, but really good um, in the clinch. Um, so, you know, it's just, a, it's just the sort of thing that uh is going to have to learn. But, you know, I've, I've been spending a lot of time talking about uh, things that I think he could do better, which just sounds like how great for me because, um, no, he was really good. Um, and yeah, in the sharpness of his work, you know, again, he's going to learn from fighting tired. Um, there are, and that he's now probably going to be better the next time at keeping doing the things he needs to be doing, um, even when he's tired. And yeah, I would say, uh, um, even when, uh, you know, he'll improve through things, but also that one too is going to be shockingly hard for a lot of people to get past. Like, um, he was fighting Marius Brightest. Again, he's not going to find many people better suited to breaking that kind of thing down than Bridus. Um, certainly not a cruiserweight. Um, so, so that shot's just going to land for him. That you know, that one two is going to be money for him um, throughout his career. You would have thought, and yeah, it's going to take really high level fighters to to break through it. So even you know all those little things I'm talking about him improving in the clinch and all that. And yeah, okay, Cody's there but um but not a lot of people are gonna bring that out of him because in the first half you know he did tire but in the first half the, his control of the tempo of the fight was such that um you know breeders had to really push through really bite down really really shut you know just he had to be he wasn't at his best best but he had to be really good to to slow up tire down um, just you know just that little bit so he could get in um other fighters are going to find it difficult to push our tempo without getting punished, and they're also going to find it difficult, you know, um, even if he does slow down, they're not going to be as good as Bridis at uh, exploiting it. So, you know, these are little things I'm talking about. Basically, I'm putting him on a very high level here. I'm putting him on a high pedestal here. Um, yeah, um, his control of range, just, you know, um, you know, I, 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 I complain about him maybe being over-reliant on it, but it's very good. You know, he was making Brodus fall short in exactly the way that I thought was going to happen the other way around. He's fast, you know, he's fast, he's powerful, he's he's got an accurate, you know, he's accurate. Um, he's got good, you know, I, again, I, you know, I talk about him being one-layered uh, in one sense, or needing a bit more, he's definitely not one-layered, um, but, um, you know, need a bit more. But in terms of variation, again, um, you know, it just bears repeating the variation on the two in the one two the variation on the, the way he throws his backhand is just fantastic in this fight and the timing on it you know it's just superb it's really 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 good um yeah it's just really you know this is a good fighter i am now a fan and again i cannot stress enough how how hard he is how 
much of a bad man that man is for, for fighting that way um, with his jaw as broken as it was. Like he couldn't, you know, he couldn't talk at the end of the fight. He didn't do a post-fight interview because all he could do was just scream into the mic. It was just, yeah. Um, Breedus, um, for his, uh, for, from his side, you know, I'm not going to, this podcast, I made this podcast about Pattaya, um, but Breedus, you know, he proved certain things, you know, early on he was a bit, um, he was falling short, but he found his timing, he found his range, he started doing the things that I thought he would be doing. He's a tough, tough bastard himself. Um, you know, you know, he's, he got his, like I say, he got his nose smeared all over his face. That uppercut in the fourth round really hurt him. Um, but he recovered well. He took it like a champ and then he recovered well. Um, and yeah, he ended up, you know, making little adjustments, which he's very good at mid fight and, uh, and sort, you know, just sorting out. You know, he had an argument to win here. It was, like I say, I scored a draw. Um, it wouldn't have been, uh, robbery if it had been scored the other way. Um, he wants a rematch. I doubt he'll get one just because, um, yeah, Opatia's going to be out for a while. And, um, when he does come back, I imagine he wants something else. I imagine uh, um, it was a mandatory, so I doubt there was a rematch clause. Sometimes there are, but I don't think Bridus carries that kind of, uh, heft and power. Um, so he would like a rematch. I doubt he's getting one. He's 37, so he can't hang around waiting for it. Um, I don't know who he fights next. Maybe he'll get a Cody anyway. Like, if he wants a Jake Paul, obviously that's not going to happen. You know, it wasn't going to happen anyway. It's definitely not going to happen now. Um, maybe he could fight a Cody anyway, although now that he hasn't got a belt, I don't know whether Cody fancies a risk. Um, you know, instead of saving up for the, for the, um, unification. But, uh, you know, he's still got, he didn't look, um, broken. This fight will definitely have taken something out of him too. And at 37, it'll be hard for him to recover, even though he was mar- markedly less injured in terms of just, you know, actual lacerations and breaks. I say lacerations, he had some cuts over his eyes and stuff. Um, but yeah, he's got a little bit of something left in the tank and I hope to see him again. Um, other things on the card. Um, well, uh, you know, there's nothing hugely significant on an international level. There was one spectacular knockout. It's a bit of a mismatch. Um, Isaac Hardman, um, making basically his recovery fight. He lost to Michael Zarafa, got knocked out, um, back in April. So he's made a quick turnaround for his comeback fight. He was fighting Bert Hartas, who was, um, I think 6-1 coming into it. Um, and it was a mismatch. Like, it was a tune-up fight for sure. Um, Hartas, you know, didn't really belong him, with him in there, and it did end in a very quick, very scary KO. You know, it's just now that we know Hartman, um, Hartas is okay, it's you know, it's a fun KO to watch, and you should look it up. Um, the main fight, not the main thing, fight is not even it wasn't a significant fight or anything, but the main thing I want to talk about just because it's uh, something learnable in it. There's something you know, if you're interested in little details like this, um, it is, it's something, it's just a little something where, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say watch the whole fight, um, but, um, yeah, Connor Wallace, the Aussie, um, local, um, was fighting Paris Chevalier, who was, um, for me, uh, having watched this fight, um, I'm sure I'd seen him before, but I can't remember him, um, he'd been hang, uh, ranked, Surprisingly, um, you know, I think he was top nine with the RBF and apparently top 15 with all sectioning bodies. Uh, 
which kind of baffles me, but it's light heavy, so maybe not that much, because um, he didn't look great. But, um, but yeah, he's fighting Connor Wallace, um, who is, let's see how old he is, he's 26, so, you know, and I don't, I don't think Wallace is going to be like a major player on the world stage, but um, he looked pretty decent. But basically, what I want to talk about is the the importance of controlling the center line and having something down the center line because this was another fight I don't know if you uh, you may remember um, the two fights between Chris Bullen Smith and um, Tommy McCarthy on the British scene um, which involved Bullen Smith being sort of the bread and butter potatoes guy meat and potatoes um, you know sharp jab coming down the middle a bit straight lined but controlling the, the center line and um, McCarthy just having to come round the outside all the time. And in the first fight, Bernie Smith ended up winning. Um, I think it was a tight, close points decision, but he won it. And in the second fight, he um, wore McCarthy down and knocked him out. And the story was quite similar here. Um, Wallace didn't knock um, Chevalier out. It was a points decision. It was a split decision, but that's utterly laughable. Um, it was very definitely a Wallace win. But, you know, it's basically the same story. Connor Wallace was, um, he had a sharp jab. Um, and, you know, he, he looks quite straight-lined, but he had a, he was very sharp down the centre line. He had a good jab, he was controlling, he was stepping in when he needed to, he was backing off when he needed to, and he was making it very hard for Chevalier to do anything down that centre line, which meant that everything Chevalier did was hooks and loopy and and not just he'll throw it game. Everything he did, he needed to take himself off balance to get anything home, which meant that he wasn't recovering properly. He was, you know, his, the shots were moving him more than they, they should have been, you know, all of that stuff. And so even though Chevalier is clearly the more athletic and he has some flashier like techniques and, you know, uppercuts and just some, some stuff. And he hasn't, you know, in theory, a bit of head movement that he could use, but he couldn't do anything down the middle. So he was just reduced to trying to move around the outside with no proper base because his footwork wasn't up to it um and and yeah he lost pretty handily but there was a couple of rounds in the sort of middle or late where he got a few things home and may have um, had, may have won a couple of rounds but um but um but ultimately Connor Wallace was just clearly the, the dominant guy there and yeah just you know just maybe watch a couple of rounds to see what I'm talking about and the importance, you know, why people talk about the importance of fundamentals because this was very much a guy with solid fundamentals. We'll see as he moves up whether he has too much on top. But um, but he has the fundamentals down, sharp jab, all of that, good guard. You know, just all the stuff that you need. And, uh, and Chevalier was a guy who's maybe focusing more on the flashy stuff, on, you know, head movement without proper base, on loopy, flashy shots, without proper backup and yeah he basically got sadly outboxed and it's just one of those fights um there's you know of minor interest as a relevance but you can learn things from it so it may be worth looking up um, just you know like i say it wasn't a a rewatch worthy thing but it's just uh you, you've spot what i'm talking about very quickly you know this wasn't a subtle dynamic um the other card of the weekend was headlined by joe joyce versus um Christian Hammer, which played, you know, on paper it was a mismatch and in practice ended up being one too. Um, ultimately, you know, we, we're going to end up saying the same things we always said about Joyce because he did take a few hard shots from Hammer that he probably didn't need to just because he's so damn slow and he wasn't protecting his chin. He wasn't using, uh, bringing his left back hand back as sharp as he, you know, maybe he wanted to. Uh, so he took a few harder shots early. 
but he ate them, you know, he ate them like they were candy floss, so, so Hammer, there is one, one replay, I can't remember which one it was, but there was one replay of a slow-mo shot of Hammer, you know, he sees that he's going to land the shot, and he's grinning, and he lands a shot, and he's grinning, and then Joe Joyce just doesn't react at all, he doesn't blink, he keeps rolling forward, and Hammer just, you know, he you can pinpoint the second his heart breaks in half, you know, quite possibly that was the moment he realised that he was going to find it very hard to win that fight, um, and that was the story of the fight. You like, you just can't. If you can't stop Joe Joyce running forward, and it's very hard to do. You know, for for all that he's one of the slowest fighters fighting at a high level. You know that we've seen in our you know in our lifetimes. Um, it's very hard to match his pace at heavyweight in terms of volume. Uh, Usyk can do it, which is why you know they fought at the, in the WBSS, um, and Usyk scored, scored him pretty handily. Um, but no one else is going to be able to... Yeah, I mean, Tyson Fury, for sure. But no one else is going to be able to live with the pace. Um, there are guys who are going to be able to knock him out, quite possibly. You know, Deontay Wilder and Anthony Joshua. And possibly Dillian White. Um, you know, I think I'd pick uh, Joyce to beat White at this stage. But, um, you know, who the fuck knows, really. Um, but, yeah, like, if if he ever fought Joshua or Wilder, and I'm not sure that they ever want to take... You know, I'm not sure they fancy that risk, given the reward. Um but, yeah, they would have a pretty high chance of knocking him out. But if they can't, in the first three rounds, maybe four rounds, they're going to start melting. And uh, we already know that Wilder isn't like, going to put back. Okay, Anthony Joshua might be able to just jab and move him to a um, to a victory. Um, because he can do that. He has that in his locker. And Joyce isn't phenomenally faster than the really fat Andrew Lilby is. He's a lot more consistent and his jab is really good. So he might be able to break AJ even with that. But, um, but, you know, AJ has that backup plan. Um, Wilder, Wilder, I am pretty confident that that fight wouldn't be going the distance. But ultimately, I just like Joe Joyce. I like watching Joe Joyce. You know, I understand the criticisms. Yeah, he's not very fast. Yeah, he's not very subtle. He has more subtleties in what he's doing, setting up his shots, than uh, people give him credit for. And his jab, for all that it's not that fast, is nice and varied in his timing and all of that. Um, but, yeah, he's not a subtle fighter particularly. Um, he's definitely a very slow one, and his defence, you know... I say it needs work. I don't think it's going to get that work. Um, yeah, he. Um, you know, I commented on this was definitely in the bad. This was definitely in the bad left comments. Um, and um, Scott Christ, who you know the um, editor of Bad Left Hook, also commented in, the, in there roughly the same time. Him being Matt, him being coached by Ishmael Salas is so weird. Like, like Scott Scott asked, you know, what is the end game there? And I was just like that. That just the image doesn't fit at all. And his other trainer um, in his in the pros has been Adam Booth, and that just doesn't fit at all either. Like, you know, uh, Joe Joy is, is being coached by these guys who encourage fleet footedness and lots of foot painting and often quite a hand down style and you know in and out subtlety and all of that. Those are the two guys that uh, those are the main traits of both guys in very different ways, but um, those are the main traits of both of the main influences on Joe Joyce's pro career. I say that because I think this is his second stint in the Salah, so I'm not sure. But yeah, it's a weird, just a weird match. But it may be for the best, because Joe Joyce is always going to be a guy who sort of rumbles forward like an avalanche, punching, punching, punching. It may be that that's being trained by Salas, you know, is completely counterintuitive. Um, if you don't think of it as completely settled in that, um, in their, in what they're doing, that may be the wrong choice, you know, you don't want to have someone completely opposite of what a fighter's doing. But Joe Joyce is always going to be doing that. So having someone who can 
maybe tease a little bit of something out of it, just a little bit of range of management, just a little bit of that. Maybe the best choice, rather than someone who's just going to be telling you choice the things he already knows how to do and would always know how to do. So, you know, I can't ultimately say I'm against it. In any case, um, yeah, the fight went pretty much how we'd expect it to do. You know, once Choice got into the swing of things, he just chased Hammer down and uh, battered him to the head and to the body. Um, I think, I mean, there were a bunch of knockdowns. I think they were all, all body shots. The final one was a walk-off body shot, which is nice to see. Like, you don't too often see that. As you see, um, you see walk-off um, headshots. You know, if, if you catch a guy so hard that he's staying on his feet before so he falls down, and that's always cool. Always a bit scary, but always cool. Um, not too often that you see a fighter realise immediately that the body shot he's landed is going to cause a delayed reaction, which always did, um, and that's just just fun. It was, you know, it, it's not uh, it's not going to go down in history. We're not going to, you know, I'm not going to go be watching, going picking it out in a few years, going, oh yeah, remember this. But you know, I just like watching Joe Joyce, and I quite enjoyed that one. Um, the main thing, the main fight, uh, really, in terms of sort of relevance and. You know, coming in their style matchup and um, may, maybe being competitive was Zanani Tete versus Jason Cunningham at Bantamweight. Um, I believe was it from uh, it was for the Commonwealth belt which Cunningham held. And Cunningham used to fight at Super Bantam. He used to also fight at Superfly. Um, yeah, he did quite well at Superfly. Then he went up to Super Bantam. Won he possibly the common it was either the Commonwealth or the British or the one European, one of those sort of sub world belts. And then he got melted and lost a bunch of fights. And then he dropped down again and has been on a good little streak that got him into this. Um, and the question basically was was um Cunningham has you know, he's a little ragged, um but he has quite a deep game and he likes to take an angle and um Zanani Tete is very sharp and solid and smooth, but he can be a little more vulnerable if someone gets around the side of him. Was um, was Cunningham going to be able to do that and uh, score? You know, ultimately the upset. And the answer was emphatically no. Um, Zolani to Taylor looked very good. He looked very sharp. Um, me and Taylor both describe him as Rigo Light or Budget Rigo. Um, you know, I I think he's a bit more keen to find an opening if he sees one than Rigondo, um, while also having less tools to do it. But he does have a phenomenal punch on him and. Uh, you know, that was the difference here. Like, um, Cunningham could not get to him without taking brutal shots. I think it being a southpaw versus orthodox matchup hurt him in this case because he really needed to be getting down the outside of, um, of Tete's lead hand, um, of, uh, of Tete's jab and all of that. And he was finding that very difficult to do. And every time he tried to come down the inside and come down the center, he was getting tagged and countered. And, um, and yeah, it just wasn't a good night for him. And, yeah, once he got hurt, um, just to say proved what you can do when you know what you're doing. You know, people talk about the clinch game being hard because fighters just grab and hold. And that's true. And if refs let that happen, then that's a bad thing. But you can punish them for it. And uh, Tete, he saw Cunningham try to slide, uh, try to um, hug him. And you have to lean forward to grab a hug and box him. Like, you can't just walk up to your opponent. I mean, you can, but then you'll just get slept anyway. So you're not going to walk up upright grab him for a hug. You're going to be somewhat leaning in. And if an opponent can just slide back and catch you as you're leaning in, you know, you're, you're toast. Um, and that's what happened to Cunningham, essentially. It wasn't the final punch, but it was just before the final knockdown. Um, he tried, you know, he was really hurt. He was trying to grab and hug and Tessa slid back and caught him and clubbed him. And then he finished him off. And 
Yeah, no, Tete is just really good. And this is Bantam, right? So this is where Fulton and Ackman Daniel from last week reside. I don't think he's going to beat either one of them, but um, I also don't think he's going to be an easy out. He is getting on in age. I think he's 34 now. Uh, is he 34 or 37? Um, for some reason, I have those two numbers in my head. He's 34, so he's not old, old, but he's getting on. Um, and, you know, he's not, he's a powerful puncher, but he's not huge in the weight. Um, you know, he's coming up in weight, uh, that's all from what he historically fought. But, uh, yeah, no, he's got the power to trouble them. So I just realised I've been making a mistake the whole time here and in the preview. Um, I just completely got the mates mixed up. This was at Super Bantam. Cunningham used to fight at Featherweight and, Bant and um, Bantam, and now he's at Super Bantam at a couple of weight for himself. Um, I should have figured that because I thought like, Super Bantam is not that high for a Super Flyweight. Um, you know, he was fighting at Featherweight, and that's where he got into trouble. Um, and this was at Super Bantam, where Akhmedalia and Fulton are. Um, I'm leaving that in because, you know, it was in the preview, so I should correct myself um, on the record. Yeah, um, this was at Super Mountain. Tete, yeah, he's going to, you know, he's not going to be the next one challenging for either title. I thought um, he's going to struggle to get uh, Akhmedalev anyway because um, Frank Warren hates, um, hates Eddie Hearn. But, you know, I like Tete. Like, he's he's kind of fun. Uh, he can be in really boring fights. Um, his fight against Narvaez was... Um, Absolutely dreadful, historically bad, but um, that was more of ours. Like Tete's style can lead to boring fights, but he tries to make them exciting. Um, like he's not Rigondeau, who's just not doing anything. He's trying. It can sometimes lead to Rigondeau-like results, and you know I love Rigondeau. Can sometimes lead to Rigondeau-like results because he doesn't have as many tools to push the tempo, but. Uh, but, you know, he does have that thing of being just really sharp, really powerful, um, really hard, nailed down, um, counter-puncher. Maybe, you know, he's just definitely shallower game than your Rigondos or whatever. But, you know, that I'm talking that that's where I have to reach to to find a criticism. It should tell you, you know, he's a really good fighter. Um, yeah, I would love to see him against Fulton. Um, I, you know, I just don't think we're really going to get it. Um, but, but, yeah, he'll be... He'll be a tricky opponent for anyone in this division, and uh, and you know that's just you know I hope he I hope he sticks around. I hope he um, he does this thing in this division for a little while. But yeah, I don't really know who I'd like him to fight right now. Just looking at you know Daniel Daniel Romance, Louis Neri. You know, there's a bunch of fighters that will be fun for him. Um, I don't know whether Frank Warren because he's with Frank Warren, South African, but he's with Warren. I don't know if Warren can get in those fights, but you know he'll be nice. Um, and that ultimately is it for the week. Uh, next week is, you know, this, we're now in that section of the summer where we're having a little bit of a dip after this three-month gap. Um, but there are a couple of things. Um, Mark Mutai versus Ray Vargas. That's a featherweight fight. Um, and Brandon Figueroa is um, coming back. Uh, you know, Figueroa is fighting Castro essentially in an eliminator for... Maxeo in the main event, Maxeo versus Vargas, so the, the two main, the winners of the two top two fights on that card should be fighting each other later in the year, I'd imagine. Um, and yeah, that should be fun. Uh, oh, you know, Figueroa in particular is a, is a, is a cool fighter, but, um, but all of that, you know, that whole card should be pretty cool. And then in England, we've got Derek Chisora versus Kubra Pulev, which, you know, where Bert Chisora is always fun. Um, on that card is the, uh, Rematch between Israel Madrimov and Vesmont Michel Soro. Um, 
where Madrimorph in the first fight um, was kind of eh, and then he won. Uh, he started to get back into it, and then he um, and it wasn't really his fault, but um, but the bell went and he knocked Sarah out well after the bell, um, and nobody heard it. Like the ref, he didn't hear it, the ref didn't hear it. I don't think. Um, but it happened. It was clearly after the bell, so they'd been ordered to rematch. They are, uh, and yeah, there's just a couple, a couple of other things on that card. Um, Fabio Ward is always cool, but I don't think his opponent's been announced yet. Um, yeah, just um, just a bunch of little things, and so I will try to preview those again. Um, you know, at this stage, I'm never promising anything, just because I just don't know where I'm going to be um, health-wise at work after work, but. Uh, um, especially since we've got Corona going doing the rounds again at work, and I'm getting a bit paranoid about that. But um, you know, given that I'm still feeling the effects of having it six months ago, um, but you know, don't want to know deal with that on you. Assuming I'm feeling well, I will preview those fights. Um, I will do the podcast on them next week. I will see you next time. This is the fight site. Follow me at Crafty Boxing on Twitter. Follow the fight site at the fight site. Get on our Patreon for you know Patreon stuff and our Discord. And I will see you next week.